Social Dark Matter by Deactivated Duncan Sabian You know it must be out there, but you mostly never see it. Author's Note 1. I'm something like 75% confident that this will be the last essay that I publish on Less Wrong. Future content will be available on my Substack, where I'm hoping people will be willing to chip in a little commensurate with the value of the writing, and, after a delay, on my personal site. I decided to post this final essay here, rather than silently switching over because many less wrong readers would otherwise never find out that they could still get new Duncan content elsewhere. Author's note 2. This essay is not intended to be revelatory. Instead, it's attempting to get the consequences of a few very obvious things lodged into your brain, such that they actually occur to you from time to time as opposed to occurring to you approximately never. Most people could tell you that 17 plus 26 is equal to 43 after a few seconds of thought or figuring, and it would be silly to write an essay about 17 plus 26 equaling 43, and pretend that it was somehow groundbreaking or non-obvious. But, if the point was to get you to see the relationship between 17, 26, and 43 very, very clearly, and to remember it sufficiently well that you would reflexively think, 43, any time you saw 17 and 26 together in the wild, it might be worth taking the time to go slowly and say a bunch of obvious things over and over until it started to stick. Thanks to Karim Ola for the concept title. Heading. I, me too. In September of 2017, if you had asked men in the United States, what percentage of the women that you personally know have experienced sexual assault? Most of them would have likely said a fairly low number. In October of 2017, the hashtag HashMeToo went viral. In November of 2017, if you had asked men in the United States, what percentage of the women that you personally know have experienced sexual assault? Most of them would have given a much higher number than before. It's difficult, for many people, to remember that they would have said a number that we now know to be outrageously low. By default most of us tend to project our present knowledge back onto our past selves. But the hash me too movement was sufficiently recent, and the collective shock sufficiently well documented, that we can, with a little bit of conscientious effort, resist the mass memory rewrite. Most of us were wrong. That's true even if you specifically were, in fact, right. Talking about sexual assault is not quite as taboo, in the United States, as it is in certain other cultures. There are places in the world where, if a woman is raped, she might well be murdered by her own family, or forcibly married off to the rapist, or any number of other horrible things, because the shame and stigma is so great that people will do almost anything to escape it. There are places in the world where, if a man is raped, what are you talking about? Men can't be raped. The US is not quite that bad. But nevertheless, especially prior to October of 2017, Sexual assault was still a thing that you don't ever talk about at the dinner table and don't bring up at work. It wasn't the sort of thing you spoke of in polite company. Or even in many cases with friends and confidants, because the subject is so charged and people are deeply uncomfortable with it and there are often entanglements when both parties know the perpetrator, and since there was pressure to avoid discussing it, people tended not to discuss it. Like I said, a lot of this will be obvious. And because people didn't discuss it, a lot of people, especially though not always men, were genuinely shocked at just how common, prevalent, pervasive it is, once the conversational taboo crumbled. The dark side of this is, because sexual assault was taboo to discuss openly, many people were surprised to discover just how many of their friends and family members were victims of it. The vantablack side of this is, because sexual assault was taboo to discuss openly. Many people were surprised to discover just how many of their friends and family members were supporters of it. Either actively engaging in sexual assault themselves, or at least not finding it sufficiently objectionable enough to, you know. Object. Heading. 2, me 0, me 1, me 3. In the year 1990, if you had asked people in the United States what percentage of the population was trans, you would have generally gotten back answers like, I dunno, 1 in a thousand. Less? Transgenderism, as distinct from things like cross-dressing or homosexuality, was much less on the public's radar in the year 1990. It wasn't until 1994 that Ace Ventura, pet detective made over $100 million by relentlessly dehumanizing a trans woman. The average person would maybe have been able to conceive of the idea that one person in their entire small town might be trans which is a far cry from present-day estimates of one or two people in each graduating class in a mid-sized high school. 
1950, if you could have even gotten away with asking the question, most people in the United States would have said that very, very few people were anything other than heterosexual. Perhaps, thinking of their confirmed bachelor uncle or the lovely old widows sharing the house down the street, they might have whispered something like, half a percent, if they were sure that the question wasn't a trap. But it's likely that even gay people in the 1950s wouldn't have guessed, one in every 30 adults, which was the rate of self-report in Gallup polls in 2012, or, one in every 14 adults, which was the rate in 2022. In 1950, if you had told someone that they would likely pass within nodding distance of multiple non-straight people every single time they went to the grocery store, they would have assumed you were either crazy or slandering their hometown. The conservative party line goes something like, see? Once we stopped punishing people for bringing it up, it started happening more and more, and now it's everywhere. And this is at least somewhat true, with regards to behavior. To how many people with a given inclination express that inclination, through action? especially out in the open where everyone can see, as opposed to furtively, in private. But there wouldn't have needed to be so much glaring and shushing, if the proportion of the population with the inclination were vanishingly small. Societies do not typically wage intense and ongoing pressure campaigns, to prevent behavior that 0.0001% of people want to engage in. For as long as there have been classrooms with 30 students in them, there have been two or three queer folk in those classrooms, they simply didn't talk about it. Just like we didn't talk about sexual assault. It's not new. It's just newly UN hidden. Heading. 3. The law of prevalence. This. Transness, queerness, sexual assault. Is social dark matter. If you're both paying attention and also thinking carefully, you can conclude that it must be out there, and that there's probably actually quite a lot of it. But you don't see it. You don't hear it you don't interact with it. Unless you are a member of the relevant group, and members of that group in fact talk to each other, in which case you may have a somewhat less inaccurate picture than all of the oblivious outsiders. Many women were not shocked at the information that came out during Hash Me Too. Shocked that it came out, perhaps, but not shocked by the stories themselves. I'd like to present two laws surrounding social dark matter in this piece, and at this point we're ready for the first one. Subheading the law of prevalence. Anything people have a strong incentive to hide will be many times more prevalent than it seems. Straightforward, hopefully. People hide things they are encouraged to hide. People do not share things they are punished for sharing. Twice now, I have been told by a dear, close friend that they have developed and recovered from serious alcoholism, without me ever even knowing that they drank. Both friends formed the problem in private, and solved it in private, all without giving any outward sign. However, while almost anyone would nod along with the above, people do not often stick around long enough to do the final step, and apply it. Here are some examples of things that people are, or were, encouraged to hide, and non-zero punished for sharing or discussing or admitting to, starting with ones we've already touched on. Here's a list of bullet points. Alcoholism Alcohol abuse. Sexual assault. Homosexuality, less so than two generations ago, but still. Transgenderism, less so than a generation ago, sort of. It's depressingly complicated. Left-handedness, much less so than five generations ago. Being autistic, much less so than a generation ago. Being into BDSM or polyamory, somewhat less so than a generation ago. Liking the score from the movie, Titanic, as a seventh grade boy in N.C. in 1998. Wanting to divorce your partner or thinking that your relationship is toxic or bad, commonplace now, was almost unspeakable five generations ago. Having some small, deniable amount of Japanese heritage, in the United States, during World War II. Having some small, deniable amount of black or brown heritage, in the United States, among other places, especially a few generations ago. Having some small, deniable amount of Jewish heritage, in Europe, among other places. Having some small, deniable amount of Dalit heritage, in India, among other places. Agnosticism or atheism, in religious communities. Faith or woo, in atheistic communities. Drug use, especially hard drugs. Being a furry. Cross-dressing a drag. Providing or availing oneself of sex work. Psychopathy or borderline personality disorder. Hearing voices or having hallucinations. Being on the verge of breakdown or suicide. Having violent thoughts or urges. 
having once beaten a partner, or a child, or a dog, masturbating to fantasies of rape or torture, having HIV, being sexually interested in children, or family members, or animals, actually having sex with children, or family members, or animals, having abortions, in red enclaves, or thinking abortion should be banned, in blue ones, having committed felonies. That's the end of the list. This is not an exhaustive list by any means. But it's worth pausing for a moment, for each of these, and actually applying the law of prevalence to each, and realizing that there's really quite a lot more of that going on than you think. No, really. Seriously. Your perceptions of how rare something like incest is are systematically skewed by the fact that virtually everyone engaging in it is, also engaging in a fairly effortful, and largely successful, campaign to prevent you from ever finding out about it. Ditto everyone who habitually uses opium, or draws tentacle hentai after work, or thinks Jar Jar Binks was what made The Phantom Menace a truly great movie. The punishment our culture levied on left-handed people was fairly tame, relative to, say, the punishment our culture levies on pedophiles, even those who have never abused anyone. Yet even that punishment was enough to hide or suppress 75% of left-handedness. Three in, four, left-handers or would-be left-handers were deterred, in the year 1900. Incidents went up from 3% to 12% once the beatings began to slow. There's an image here in the text. It's not crazy to hazard that some of the more strongly stigmatized things on the list above have incidents that's 10x, or even 100x what is readily apparent, just like the number of trans folk in the population is wildly greater than the median American would have guessed in the year 1980. Heading. 4. Interlude I. Nazis. There's something of a corollary to the law of prevalence. When the stigma surrounding a given taboo is removed, or even just meaningfully decreased, this is almost always followed by a massive uptick in apparent prevalence. A very straightforward example of this is Nazi and white supremacist sentiment in the United States, Canada, and Europe over the previous decade. The internet is littered with commentary from people saying things like, but where did all these Nazis even come from? In point of fact, most of them were already there. There has not been a 2x or 5x or 10x increase in actual total white supremacist sentiment. Though there probably has been some modest marginal increase, as more people openly discuss the claims and tenets of white supremacy and some people become convinced of those ideas for the first time, or as the culture war has polarized people to greater and greater forgiveness of those on their side, etc. Instead, what happened is that there has been a sudden rise in visibility. Prior to 2015, there was a fragile ban on discussing the possible superiority or inferiority of various races, similar to the ban on discussion of sexual assault pre hash me too. In most venues, it simply wasn't the sort of thing one would mention. And many, many people, not getting the law of prevalence all the way down in their bones, mistook the resulting silence for an actual absence of white supremacist sentiment. Because they never heard people openly proselytizing Nazi ideology they assumed that practically no one sympathized with Nazi ideology. And then one Donald J. Trump smashed into the Overton window like a wrecking ball, and all of a sudden a bunch of sentiment that had been previously shamed into private settings was on display for the whole world to see, and millions of dismayed onlookers were disoriented at the lack of universal condemnation, because surely none of us think that any of this is okay? But in fact, a rather large fraction of people do think this is okay, and have always felt this was okay, and were only holding their tongues for fear of punishment, and only adding their voices to the punishment of others to avoid being punished as a sympathizer. When the threat of punishment diminished, so too did their hesitation. The key thing to recognize is that this is, mostly, not an uptick in actual prevalence. Changes to the mimetic landscape can be quite bad in their own right, the world is somewhat worse now that white supremacy is less afraid of the light, and discussions of it are happening out in the open where young and impressionable people can be recruited and radicalized, and the marginal racist is marginally bolder and more likely to act on their racism. But it's nowhere near as bad as it looks. Judging by visibility alone, it seems like white supremacy has become 10x or 20x more prevalent than it was a decade ago. But if there had actually been a 10-20x increase in the number of white supremacists, the world would look very, very different. Or, to repurpose the words of Eugene Gendlin, you can afford to live in the world where there are this many white supremacists and white supremacist sympathizers among your neighbors and colleagues, because, to a first approximation, you were already doing so. Ditto anti-Semites, ditto misogynists, ditto pedophiles, ditto people hearing voices, 
Ditto people committing all those perfect crimes that you've always been told don't exist. But if you stop and think for 12 seconds you'll realize that they totally exist, of course they exist, they're probably happening all the time, and yet somehow the world keeps spinning and society doesn't collapse. It is worse than you thought, but it's not as bad as you would naively expect, don't panic. Heading. V. Interlude 2. The Fearful Swerve. There is a substance called shellac that is made from the secretions of the female lac bug, formal name Keria lacca. Out in the wild, shellac looks like this. There's an image here in the text. This substance has many uses. One such use is making the outer shells of jelly beans shiny and hard and melt in your mouth soluble. Many people, upon discovering that the jelly beans they have been enjoying all their lives are made with something secreted by a bug. I mean, what a viscerally evocative word. Secrete. Squelchy. Many people, upon discovering that the jelly beans they have been enjoying all their lives are coated in bug secretions, experience a sudden decrease in their desire to eat them. This is the fearful swerve. Here is, roughly, how it works. The human mind has something like buckets, for various pieces of information, and those buckets have valences, or karma scores. For many people, jelly beans live in a bucket that is very good. The bucket has labels like delicious and yes, please, and mmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmmm
jelly beans are off limits now, because I'm an ethical vegan and shellac is an animal byproduct is very, very different from just going, you, gross, and letting that impulse have final say. Heading. 6. The Law of Extremity. When the categorical bucket, autism, was invented, it was built around people who were what we would now call profoundly or severely autistic. Many of them were non-verbal. Many of them had extreme tics. They were incapable of navigating ordinary human contexts, and required highly specialized and intensive assistance to survive even at home or in institutions. Over time, the medical establishment began to pick up on autistic spectrum traits in people whose support needs were not quite so great. In 1988, the movie Rain Man introduced the word, autistic, to the broader English-speaking public, and for a couple of decades Dustin Hoffman's character Raymond was the go-to archetype of a person with autism. Yes, he was disabled, but he could talk, he could walk, he could feed himself, and not every surprising stimulus triggered a meltdown. In 2010, as a middle school teacher, I encountered my own first bona fide, formerly diagnosed autist, in the form of a student named Ethan. Ethan was fully capable of holding up his end of a completely normal conversation, though he much preferred that conversation be about Spore or Minecraft, and was not shy about saying so. On December 19, 2021, I ended a months-long process of discovering that I am autistic. These days, somewhere between 10% and 25% of my social circle wears that label as part of their identity. The law of prevalence states that anything people have a strong incentive to hide will be many times more prevalent than it seems. Part of what makes this possible at all is the law of extremity. Subheading. The law of extremity. If part of the incentive to hide it is that the culture treats it as dangerous or threatening or debilitating, the median and modal instances of it will be many times less extreme than the cultural narrative would have you believe. The prevalence of autism in 1988 was basically the same as it is today, that is really quite startlingly common, overall less rare than red hair. Yes, there are some reasonable hypotheses that certain environmental changes, not vaccines, are leading to an actual ground-level increase in the rate of autism, but if so, we're talking about something like a 1.5x, 3x increase, not a 10x or 20x or 50x increase. But this claim, that something close to 3% of the population is autistic, would sound absolutely crazy to your everyday moviegoer leaving the theatre in 1988 after watching Rain Man. It would sound crazy because that moviegoer's picture of autism, was rooted in an unusually extreme example of what an autistic person looks like. The 1988 counterparts of, me, and, my autistic friends, and, my student Ethan, weren't quite trying to hide their autism in the way that people actively try to hide things like psychopathy and pedophilia, though they probably were spending a ton of personal resources in an attempt to seem more normal than they were on the inside. But our 1988 counterparts were able to fly under the radar at all because everyone else's autism detectors were trained on, much more extreme and pathological variants of the traits that they themselves carried. When I wrote a public Facebook post letting my social circle know that I am autistic, a friend of mine replied with the following, abridged. Quote. I've been uncomfortable with this label myself because this one time I went to a grocery store, to buy a bottle of a specific dish soap to make giant soap bubbles. And there was this guy meticulously restacking the product who I just ignored because I thought he was a store employee but then he grunted, and shoved my hand away when I tried to take one. An older fellow identifying himself as the man's caretaker showed up and had to explain the situation. Then I had to drive to another store to get that specific dish soap. But, anyway, my point is, neither of us are like that guy, and that's the sort of case I thought the psychiatric label was designed for. End quote. To which my partner at Logan Stroll replied. Quote. Because the characteristics you're mostly likely to observe in someone are the easy to see from their outside ones, unusual social behaviors, motor problems, speaking problems, you'll probably by default see people with extreme versions of these more visible characteristics as more autistic. But there are autistic people who can neither walk nor talk but are unusually good asterisk for a median human asterisk at flirting. There are autistic people who have severe world-shattering meltdowns daily from sensory overload, yet have built such convincing masking and coping mechanisms that their bosses do not know they're anything besides, a bit quirky. There are autistic people who react so violently and explosively to perceived rule violations, that they need constant supervision to protect others and themselves, yet they find life in the middle New York City comfortable and exciting rather than overwhelming. 
I think there is a thing going on with intelligence, where people with higher intelligence tend to succeed more at going about normal life than people with lower intelligence. If two people share basically the same innate tendencies WRT information processing style, social processing architecture, sensory processing ability, etc. But one is IQ 95 while the other is IQ 160. Then the IQ 95 person may seem like a total disaster who can't dress himself let alone hold down a job, while the IQ 160 person has stable employment, a mortgage, and lots of friends who appreciate his quirky interests and moral passion. One of these people isn't more autistic than the other. They read just more asterisk disabled asterisk than the other. There's a very similar effect from support. Imagine two very similar autistic people again. One of them is born into a wealthy progressive family, they go to the same school and live in the same town the whole time they're growing up, their parents organize a lot of structured interest-based socialization for them, and then they go to college where food is provided by resident services in the cafeteria while they study computer science, until they move on to the Google campus. The other person grows up moving from foster home to foster home in a conservative area where differences are seen as threatening, and they are considered a problem child and put through ABA therapy that punishes their coping strategies and tries to cure their disorder. The first person will not stick out nearly as much to someone looking for obvious external signs of autism. Given that Duncan is both very intelligent and has been very well supported in the relevant ways throughout his life, then on the hypothesis that he is autistic, we should expect his internal experiences and personal struggles to be way more similar to those of supermarket guy than they appear, much more similar to those of supermarket guy than to those of a randomly chosen person. End quote. Which is in fact true. I was immediately able to recognize and describe several ways in which the supermarket guy seemed to be something like a less well-contained version of myself. The first autistic people to rise to the level of attention were those who had such intense versions of the traits that they outshone everything else, lack the support structures and coping strategies that allow people with the traits to overcome them and appear to not have them. And thus, when the stereotype, archetype, of autism began to crystallize, it crystallized with those people at the center, when in fact they well to the right side of the bell curve. This, claims the law of extremity, is approximately always going to be true. It doesn't matter if you're talking about autism or homosexuality or sexual assault or drug use or secret Jewish heritage, when it comes to social dark matter, what you hear about on the news and see depicted in movies and shows will always be an unusually vivid version of, whatever it is. Someone who couldn't hold it together, couldn't keep up the facade, someone whose, thing, is so intense, or whose self-control is so tattered, that they can't keep it under wraps like everybody else. There's an image here in the text. A term of art in this domain is representativeness. There's a difference between the most memorable or most recognizable version of a thing, and the actual most common or typical example. The classic archetype of a basketball player is a thin, muscular, dark-skinned man, pushing seven feet tall and wearing a jersey with a number on it. But the vast majority of the people actually playing basketball at any given moment do not fit this description. You could call it the law of caricature, perhaps. The picture of a drug user is a lank, twitchy, pale man with greasy hair and disheveled clothes and wild, suspicious eyes, but most drug users look nothing like that. A New Yorker cartoon depicting a Jew might have characteristic long braids and dark clothes and a yarmulke and a prayer shawl with a star of David, but most Jews do not look like that, most of the time. If Hashmi too taught us anything, it taught us that you can't identify rapists and molesters simply by looking for people who look like rapists and molesters. There's an image here in the text. Just as 99 plus percent of basketball players look nothing like LeBron James, so too is it obvious, if you pause and actually take the time at 17 to 26, that 99 plus percent of psychopaths aren't serial killers and 99 plus percent of pedophiles aren't child molesters, and 99 plus percent of drug users have never mugged a stranger on the street to pay for their next hit. The perception that all of these traits are necessarily extreme and dangerous is explained by the fact that the visible examples of psychopaths and pedophiles and drug users are all drawn from the extreme end of the distribution. When the penalty for a certain kind of dark matter is steep enough, the only individuals you notice are the ones who cannot escape notice, and if you don't keep your brain on a fairly short leash, it will naturally default to a corresponding belief that the entire population of psychopaths and pedophiles and drug users centers on those individuals. But in all likelihood, for every person wandering the street raving about Freemasons, 
There are literally dozens who hear voices from time to time and never unravel enough that they even get diagnosed. Or, to put it another way, you can't confidently deduce an absence of people hearing voices in a given population from an absence of people raving on the street, just like you shouldn't be confident that no one is playing basketball because none of them are seven feet tall. Similarly, HashMeToo showed us that it's a mistake to conclude that none of the people in our lives have been sexually assaulted simply because none of them are suffering nightmares and panic attacks and having trouble holding down a job, and conspicuously avoiding being in the same room as their boss. Most rape victims don't look anything like the training data our society handed us. Heading. 7. Surely you're joking, Mr. Sabian. I once got into a protracted disagreement with a colleague about the prevalence of a specific form of social dark matter. I used eight different independent lines of reasoning to try to reach an estimate of how commonplace it might be, each of which gave me back an answer somewhere in the ballpark of 0.5% to 5%. Several of the lines of reasoning were very crude of course or rudimentary, such that if any one of them had been my sole source of intuition I would have been embarrassed to proffer my guess, and might have preferred to say, I really don't know but eight unrelated crappy methods all giving answers in the same order of magnitude felt like real reason for confidence. My colleague did not buy it. They were insistent that prevalence had to be well below one in a thousand. They were someone in whom people frequently confided, on a fairly wide range of issues, I've been told equally damning things, multiple times. I find it hard to believe I would have simply never heard this particular one, from anyone, unless it is in fact vanishingly rare and yet I had received confidences from multiple such people, more than one of whom was also close to my colleague and yet chose not to extend their trust in that direction. This is no accident. Most people systematically drive away such confidences, and I work rather hard, and rather deliberately, to earn them. The driving away is usually not intentional. It's a vibe thing. It comes across in offhand comments and micro-expressions and reflexive, Cashed responses that the speaker will hardly even notice themselves saying, because they're so self-evidently true. There's an image here in the text. If you walk around aggressively signaling the equivalent of, what? There ain't no faggots in this town, then it should be no surprise to you that your lived experience is that none of the people around you are gay, even though base rates imply that quite a few of them are. If you exude, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, then you will generally not hear from atheists except the unusually militant and confrontational ones, and you will likely underestimate their prevalence in your religious community. And you may also underestimate the prevalence of non-binary folk in your immediate vicinity. The thing that tells someone's gut that you are not safe to confide in is often indirect or subtle, and speaking always of brothers, and sisters, and never of siblings, or children, is exactly the sort of subtle signal that puts the animal instincts inside of a marginalized person on high alert. If you embody a belief that of course none of us in this room are suppressing deeply violent fantasies, because after all, we're all good people here, then good people who have their deeply violent fantasies well in hand will not have any reason at all to disillusion you. If you would never hear from a paedophile in the world where there are none in your social circle, and you would never hear from a paedophile in the world where there are a dozen in your social circle, then you cannot use the fact of having never heard from one to tell you which world you are in. It's a bit dangerous, epistemically speaking, to say, absence of evidence is evidence, but in the case of social dark matter, it really, often, is. Self-fulfilling prophesies abound, the incentive gradients creating the blind spots are clear, and you don't have to observe all that many white ravens surreptitiously covering their feathers in coal dust before you learn to roll your eyes, at the people running around insisting that 99.9% .9 of all ravens are black and to develop a default mistrust of the things those people confidently claim to know about the properties of white ravens, since their conclusions are drawn from an impoverished and wildly non-representative data set, and are therefore mostly bunk. Heading. 8. The law of maybe calm the fuck down. Okay, that one's not actually a law. But it's the right prescription, in the sense of being the correct action to take a majority of the time. Core claim. If you were a median American in the United States in the year 1950, and you discovered that your child's teacher or coach or mentor was secretly in a homosexual relationship with another adult, you would very likely have felt something like panic. The median American in that era would have concluded that the teacher was obviously a clear and present danger, and taken immediate steps to protect their child from that danger, and the resulting fallout would have likely completely derailed that person's life. 
And this, I further claim, would almost certainly have been bad, a moral tragedy, a miscarriage of justice, and at the root of the badness would have been people being really really wrong, as a question of simple fact, about what was implied and entailed by the mere presence of, homosexuality. Ditto if someone adopted the socially appropriate level of panic about a female neighbor in the 1600s after spotting her, stewing herbs in the moonlight. Ditto if someone adopted the s.a.l.o.p about their neighbor in California in 1942, after discovering that they were not, in fact, one-eighth Korean, but actually one-eighth Japanese. Since our moral evolution has probably not yet brought us to a state of overall perfect judgment, it seems quite likely to me that there are dozens of other tragedies of similar form taking place right now, in today's society, conclusions being drawn, and consequences being mitted out, which are overwhelmingly approved of, but which future generations will, correctly, assess as having been wildly unjustified and excessive and wrong. Situations in which someone 1. Unexpectedly encounters interacts with it becomes aware of someone else's social dark matter. 2. Leaps unquestioningly to the standard panicked conclusions that society has trained into them, and 3. Subsequently throws an otherwise good and innocent person into the jaws of the machine. That's the main thing I'd like to see happen less. I'm not exactly impressed with how the machine handles actual rapists and racists and serial killers and child molesters, either, but I feel much less urgent about improving the situation for those people. Even in situations where their actions weren't exactly choices and they're unfortunately subject to forces beyond their control, the majority of my sympathy and protective energy nevertheless goes to their victims and their potential future victims. The casus belli of this essay is, can we maybe not, then, and this final section is about how, how to avoid repeating the mistakes of the past, how to avoid blowing social dark matter out of proportion simply because it's social dark matter, and you therefore systematically misjudged its magnitude or importance. Much of the subsequent advice will be incomplete, and useful only if laid atop some pre-existing base of skill and motivation. I'm going to try to gesture at the shape of the problem, and in the general vicinity of, what I suspect are, the solutions, but the actual nitty-gritty is up to you, and will require non-zero mental dexterity and field-ready metacognitive competence. I'll be recommending a class of actions that are only available to you if you are at all capable of for example noticing a thought while it's still forming, or recognizing the difference between an observation and an interpretation of that observation, or pausing and counting to ten and having the fact that you paused and counted to ten actually break a runaway cascade of thoughts. If you don't have those skills yet, take heart. There is still time. Meanwhile, the rest of the essay may still be useful in helping you get a sense of where you wish your mental muscles were stronger. I sketched out the tragic default path above, but to add a little more detail. Here's a list of bullet points. Your brain receives evidence that person A has trait X, which is social dark matter and is widely believed to be virulently awful. This triggers a pre-existing mental scheme that your society has helpfully gifted you, causing your brain to interpret its observation that person A has trait X as meaning that person A has done in the past, or inevitably will do in the future, whatever awful thing is characteristic of trait Xers. In most cases, your brain does this without noticing that it is making any intuitive leaps at all, just as you aren't usually consciously aware of the step between observing certain specific patterns of shimmering light and recognizing that what you are observing is an instance of the class fish. Your brain, thus believing itself to be in the presence of a clear and tangible threat, offers you up some form of panic, so as to fill you with motive energy to do what must be done, which in most cases includes some form of outing the person as a trait X, er, uh, whether via internet megaphone or whisper network or a call to the police or the rousing of an angry mob. This part does not usually feel like outing someone, from the inside, it feels more like doing your due diligence, or warning the potential victims, or making sure everyone is aware, or perhaps letting everyone know they've been lied to, for years. In other words, there's usually some amount of righteousness or sense of responsibility, a feeling of engaging in a public good or protecting the vulnerable or fulfilling your civic duty. As the meme spreads, each person who comes into contact with it does their very own fearful swerve, and person A's life is ultimately made substantially worse, they are fired, institutionalized, jailed, evicted, shunned, blacklisted, etc. That's the end of the list. It seems to me that there are two broad strategies for replacing this story with a more moral, less wrong one. One of them is sort of clunky and brute force why, but it has the virtue of being a thing you can do once, 
in the course of a single afternoon, and then be done with. The other is more integrated, and has some ongoing attentional costs, but the particular kind of attention required happens to be useful for a bunch of other things and so might be worthwhile anyway. The brute force strategy is to do something like write down and consciously consider some 10 or 20 or 30 important flavors of dark matter, and to meditate on each for 5 minutes and figure out your personal policy around each of them. For example, here's a list of bullet points. What do I actually believe about the base rate of suppressed rage in the general population, and why do I believe it? How suppressible, in a fundamental sense, do I think rage is, and why? What would I see if I were wrong? What things do my current beliefs rule out, and are any of those things happening? What behaviors on the part of someone with suppressed rage are deal-breakers, assuming that the mere existence of, successfully, suppressed rage is not? What other traits are comorbid with suppressed rage turning out to be a problem, actually? On the flip side, what other traits, found alongside suppressed rage, would be substantially reassuring? What events could I observe, along the lines of, if their suppressed rage were something I should actually be concerned about, I would have seen them doing X, Y, or Z? If I haven't ever observed X, Y, or Z, then it's probably fine. See also. Split and commit. In what specific circumstances that are unlike all my previous experiences of them would I expect my pre-existing models to fail? What are the boundaries of my training distribution, and what lies outside of them? For instance, have I already seen them drunk, and if so, did they seem meaningfully scarier or less stable, or was it actually just fine? That's the end of the list. In short, to what extent, and for what reason, do you endorse actually distrusting people who, it turns out, have vast quantities of hidden rage, or drug users whose drug use is invisible to outside observers, or perverts whose perversion seems firmly confined to their fantasies, or people with an utter absence of empathy whose outward behavior has nevertheless passed everyone's emotional Turing tests. By the way, the point here is not to presuppose the answer, perhaps you do still endorse distrusting them. Different people have different thresholds for risk, after all, and different people assign different moral weights to various harmful behaviors. The thing I am advocating against is joining lynch mobs by reflex and then absolving yourself of responsibility, because you were merely following the orders of your culture. It's every moral person's job to do better than what was handed to them, even if only by a little, and actually bothering to try to answer this question at all is a damn good start. One hugely beneficial side effect of thinking through specific kinds of dark matter that are likely pretty prevalent in the population is that it gets the initial shock out of the way. When you believe yourself to live in a world where no one around you regularly visualizes murdering their co-workers in grim detail, it is understandably unnerving to suddenly discover that someone on your team does. And in the resulting shock, confusion, and panic, it's easy to succumb to a generic, undirected pressure to act. It feels like an emergency. It feels like you're in danger. It feels like something must be done. And it's easy to forget the law of prevalence, and that probably several of your co-workers have such thoughts, and it's easy to forget the law of extremity, and that such thoughts probably influence and control people's actual behavior much less than media has primed you to think. And people who are frightened and disoriented often flail, taking actions that are desperate and disproportionate and poorly thought out as they try to claw back some sense of safety and control. Running through considerations like the above for even just a handful of specific strains of social dark matter does something like, inoculate you against that sort of panic response, such that when you drop by your friend's house unexpectedly and discover them halfway into putting on a fursuit, you aren't wholly ad-libbing, and have some previous prep work to fall back on. It's sort of like how, at least in theory, having practiced kicks and punches in the context of martial arts carter means, that your muscles have pre-trained patterns that will fire if you end up in an actual fight. Meditating on how you would ideally want to respond to a given unmasking makes it more likely that you will respond that way, as opposed to doing something more frantic and mercurial. The other path to not doing the thing is to catch it in the moment, that is to notice that your brain is going off the rails and intervene before it does anything drastic and irrevocable. Often, literally just noticing what's happening at all, as in, popping out of the object level flow and thinking, saying something like, I notice I'm panicking, is enough. The whole problem with social dark matter is that our underlying base of experience is deeply impoverished, which means that our unexamined beliefs are largely wrong, which means that our default responses tend to be miscalibrated and broken. 
It's like someone who's never driven on ice before reflexively slamming on the brakes. Because slamming on the brakes usually makes a car stop, your mental autopilot isn't built to get this category of thing right, and so letting your default reactions guide you is a recipe for disaster. But if you can successfully replace even one would-be link in the chain with the action, noticing what's actually happening in your brain, the odds of snapping out of it and waking up go through the roof. For a dozen more essays on this, check out the nuts and bolts of naturalism. So here, for your perusal, is a, an incomplete, list of things you might notice, if you are in the middle of something like a fearful swerve. These are thoughts or feelings or sensations that could be a clue that you want to do something like slow down and start reasoning more explicitly. Here's a list of bullet points. As mentioned above, a sense of righteousness or steely resolve or moral obligation. You might feel like you have no choice, like you are compelled to respond in a certain way, like the situation demands it. As mentioned above, a sense of urgency, that the threat is imminent, and something must be done immediately. A sense of shock and horror, that what you just learned is huge, and vast, and important, and very, very surprising. The opposite of mundane. Significant, in a dire sort of way. Confusion, disorientation, disbelief, something about this is incoherent, surely not, it can't be true, this is so discordant with everything else I know about them. A feeling of reshuffling, or throwing away, that you're having to suddenly reassess and reevaluate everything you thought you knew about a person, that every memory is suspect, that maybe it was all a facade, that maybe you can't trust any of your previous, cached beliefs. A feeling of certainty or inevitability, that you just know what this revelation means, that its consequences are obvious. You can see the pattern, you know how the dominoes will fall, or have already fallen. That a necessarily and absolutely implies B, or even that a simply is B. That what you've learned means something else, something more, something awful. That this is a situation you've never actually encountered before and have no direct experience with, and yet, curiously, you feel like you, kinda know a lot, actually? About what you're supposed to do next, and how to respond. That there's a clear script, a prescribed set of ways you're supposed to react, that you know just what you're supposed to say as soon as you can find a teacher to tell. A sense that others will back you in your outrage or dismay. That you're feeling strong feelings that are perfectly normal and what anyone would feel. That you have clear social consensus on your side. That's the end of the list. All of these things tend to push people forward along the default track. They're the opposite of the standard, virtuous, building block move of rationality, wait, hang on a second. What do I think I know, and why do I think I know it? And if you manage to become cognizant of any of those things happening in your brain, then you've already created space for yourself to simply not take the next step. To break the cascade, and instead take any number of options that buy you 30 seconds of additional breathing room. Counting slowly to 10, taking a dozen deep breaths, saying out loud, pause, I need to think, getting up and going to the bathroom, remembering your feet. The point is not so much to do some specific wiser move as it is to simply avoid doing the known bad thing, of blindly following your broken preconceptions to their obvious and tragic conclusion. Remember. If, after 30 seconds of conscious awareness and deliberate thought, you come to the conclusion, no, this actually is bad. I should be on the warpath, you can always ramp right back up again. Any panic that can be destroyed by a mere 30 seconds of slow, deep breathing is probably panic you didn't want in the first place, and it's pretty rare that literally immediate action is genuinely called for, such that you can't afford to take the 30 seconds. Heading 9. Recap and Conclusion What is social dark matter? It's anything that people are strongly incentivized to hide from each other, and which therefore appears to be rare. And given that our society disapproves of and disincentivizes a wide variety of things, there is a lot of it out there. By the law of prevalence, any given type of social dark matter is going to be much more common than your evidence would suggest, and by the law of extremity, instances of that dark matter are going to tend to be much less extreme than you would naively guess. If you lose track of these facts, you can go crazy. You can end up thinking absolutely insane things like, all psychopaths are violent, manipulative bastards, or, pedophilia is an absolute, irresistible compulsion, or, none of the women I know have ever been sexually assaulted. You can end up thinking these things because your mind takes, as its central, archetypal examples of a thing, what are actually the most extreme, most visible, most unable to be hidden instances of it. 
As a result, when you glimpse something through a window or someone offers you a confidence or you stumble across an open journal page, you are in danger of making some pretty serious mistakes, chief among them concluding that this real person is well-modeled by your pre-existing stereotype. This is called bigotry, reducing someone to a single demographic trait and then judging them based on your beliefs about that trait. And as a result of that, there are frighteningly high odds that you will fly off the handle in some fashion, and punish them for things they not only haven't done, but also very well might never have done in the future, either. And that's kind of a bummer, and maybe something that you don't want to do, on reflection. Fortunately, you have other options, such as, think through such situations in advance, and, develop the general ability to notice your brain going off the rails, and when you do, maybe just, slow down for a bit. I will reiterate that I think we have different moral responsibilities toward people with dark matter traits, versus toward people with dark matter actions. The advice, think it through in advance, and slow down for a bit in the moment, applies equally well to discovering that your partner fantasizes about violently raping people as it does to discovering that your partner has violently raped someone, but in the latter case, the correct thing to do is, in fact, to out and report them. The reason you don't necessarily out the person in the former case is because our society is systematically confused about how rare and how damning the existence of a rape fetish really is. Largely by virtue of making it extraordinarily difficult to go gather the data. And so you're causing many of their future interactions with employers and friends and potential romantic prospects to be unfairly dominated by this thing that may actually have very little to do with their core character and their actual behavior. And that's bad. It's bad to punish the innocent, and when it happens, it just further reinforces the problem, making other innocents with the same traits hide even harder in a spiral of silence. If you would like to think of yourself as the sort of person who would hide Jews from the Nazis, because the things that the Nazis believed about Jews being fundamentally and irretrievably toxic and horrible and corrosive, and evil were simply wrong. If you would like to think of yourself as the sort of person who wouldn't have destroyed the career of a high school English teacher in the 1950s, because the things that society believed about gay men being corrupting sex-craved child molesters were simply wrong. If you would like to think of yourself as the sort of person who wouldn't have burned witches, or ostracized prostitutes, or stigmatized the mentally ill, or fought to maintain segregation, then you should apply the same kind of higher perspective now, and notice the places where the current social consensus is malignantly confused just as the Jewhiders and queer allies of the past saw past their society's party lines. My parting advice. Take seriously the probability that you have not, in fact, internalized this lesson. This essay, by itself, was probably not enough to get you to really truly grok just how many sadists and coke users and schizophrenics and brotherfuckers, and closeted Randian conservatives you have in your very own social circle. They were always there, and, in many cases, it was always okay. When you have an unpleasant revelation and it feels like the sky is falling, check and see whether it's just your preconceptions shattering, or whether there's an actual problem that requires you to take action. Much of the time, there isn't, and it's acting anyway that leads to tragedy. Good luck. This article was narrated by Type 3 Audio for Less Wrong. It was first published on November 7, 2023. The original text contained nine footnotes which were omitted from the narration. To report an issue or give feedback on this narration, go to t3a.is.